Tonight on the Mental Health Comedy Network. Who will become Mr. Anxiety 2022? All the excitement, all the pageantry, all the competition, all the worry. Mr. Anxiety 2022 pageant has become the most prestigious of all the psychotherapy pageants. With all the exciting challenges and spine-tingling events, such as creative worry, self-judgment, panic-related talent, and the swimsuit competition. At the end, only one man will be left standing, and that lucky man will drive away in a brand new Kia Sorento and a $20,000 gift certificate from BetterHelp.com. And he will be crowned Mr. Anxiety 2022. Join us live. You're listening to the Mental Health Comedy Podcast with Ed Krasnick. And as always, I will be joined by the first lady of the frontal lobe, the founder of ConnectedParenting.com, Jennifer Kalari. But before we dive in, we always like to welcome listeners, no matter what emotional state you're in. Here are emotional shout-outs. If you don't think it's time to remove your emotional mask, welcome. If you're so burnt out by media that you're ready to watch the Single Tree Channel, welcome. If when you meet somebody for lunch, you bring along an emergency go bag, just in case there's a major disaster while you're eating, welcome. If you blame your Fitbit for judging you, welcome. If you become so not used to getting together with people that when they say hello, your response is too fast. If you start all your therapy sessions by using the phrase, at the end of the day, welcome. If you were locked out of a food delivery app because of too many special requests, welcome. And if you're beating yourself up even now, there's always a place for you right here on the Mental Health Comedy Podcast. All right, everybody. I think this is actually going to work. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Welcome to the Mental Health Comedy Podcast. This is the show where we not only talk about uh, mental health as a topic, but we try to make it into a verb. We try to practice skills, exercises, tools, all kinds of things that we can do to deal with our mental health, to deal with our emotional and, and our emotional well-being and our thoughts and feelings, how we relate to our thoughts and feelings. We do a lot of that on the show. Jennifer is here. Of course, Jennifer, uh, the founder of ConnectedParenting.com, which has all kinds of classes and media, all kinds of skills that people can use, parents and kids and families, and much more parenting, self-parenting. I love that term. I just love that term. Today, we're very lucky to have from a great organization called This Is My Brave, the executive director, Aaron Gallagher. Aaron is here. And along with Aaron, a comedian who's in Haverhill, everybody, all the way from Haverhill, Amy T. First of all, welcome to both of you. I have to just get started with now I've done a This Is My Brave event at the comedy store. I thought it was spectacular. Tell us how this all happened, how it all got started, and then Amy will go to you and ask uh, about your experience with, with This Is My Brave and Beyond. I am Erin Gallagher. I am currently serving as the interim executive director for This Is My Brave. And I just recently started in this role in January, taking over from Jennifer Marshall, who was the 
previous executive director, but also the co-founder of This Is My Brave. And This Is My Brave really started out of Jennifer's lived experience with mental illness. When she was in her 20s, she was diagnosed with bipolar disorder. She was a young professional woman who was living, you know, her dream, was recently married, and then started having some manic episodes that eventually was diagnosed as bipolar one. She's lived with that obviously ever since, but she, in the process of managing and learning about it, she turned to the internet to look for information about others who had faced this diagnosis and were living with it. Found a lot of comfort in the, on the internet from individuals who are writing about their experiences. And that really inspired her to start writing about her own experiences as well. But when she did so, she wrote under a pen name and that was Bipolar Mom Life. At that point, she'd had two children when she started writing. Her writing was discovered by what to expect when you're expecting. And they invited her to write for their website about living with a mental illness as a mother and how she managed all that. And at that point, she decided, you know, she'd been advocating for people to be open and honest about their own diagnoses. And then she wrote with a pen name. So she really sort of had this moment where she realized if I'm really going to be honest about this, I have to embrace it and put my own name to this, this article that I write. And so she did that after, you know, some advice that that wasn't really the best idea. She was told that she, you know, her neighbors would judge her, her coworkers wouldn't understand, but she bravely stepped forward and did it anyway. And the result that she experienced was overwhelming support and love and thanks for sharing her story with her name along with it. It was really just the opposite of what she thought would happen. And she was just overwhelmed and she, it just got her thinking, like, if, if I can have this reaction, when I share my story, maybe I could give this opportunity to other people to have a similar reaction, to be supported and loved and appreciated and thanked. And maybe their experiences can offer hope for other people. And so that's what made her think, I need to do something that can allow people to stand up and tell their stories and be affirmed and appreciated in the process. And that's how This Is My Brave really got started. She and her co-founder um, did their very first show in Arlington, Virginia in 2014. It was an overwhelming success. There was a lot of interest, like, can we do this someplace else? And so it started to travel. Cities around the country started putting on the show and inviting people from their own city. So it wasn't like the people from Arlington went to a new city. Each new city had their own storytellers. And so every show that we've done since then, which has been over 80 shows with nearly 900 storytellers, every show has been a unique production featuring local individuals telling their true stories of living with and overcoming their challenges with mental illness and addiction. Amazing, 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 yeah. just amazing in every way. And I can say, you know, for being part of a being part of a show, the things that you feel from the audience and from the participants, it's electric. It's electric. Yeah. It's really, really is that way. Did you find that, uh, Amy? Is that how you came into into uh, This Is My Brave? Yes, I auditioned. Uh, I'm uh, an alumni from This Is My Brave Boston 2017. Yeah, it was it was been absolutely amazing. Now it's like an extended part of my family. Made some great friends, and I never say no. And this is my brave ask for anything from me. Wow, 
Amy, what was, can you tell us about your first, I'm sorry to ask the question, Ed, I'm just no, taking Go over. ahead, go, go, go. I, I'm going to sit just back wondering. and enjoy this. How did you first hear about This Is My Brave? I'm also um, very actively involved with the National Alliance of Mental Illness in the Boston area and uh, heard about it through one of the individuals that had performed the year before. And they were like, Amy, you should do this. You know, you would, you'd be great. So I wrote up my piece and sent it in. Amy, now as, as a stand-up, does this show itself in your act? Do you talk about uh, mental health, mental well-being, mental illness? Is that the way you perform? Yes, absolutely. I was um, I was diagnosed about twelve years ago, and I was a, a you know I was a stand-up comic prior to that, and my act was very different. And when I was diagnosed and I got sober, I rewrote my entire act, and actually my my entire personality changed. Right, like now I'm a, a very raw, uncut person not using substances. And so I very much write from my own personal, it's a very autobiographical. So it was natural to write about the journey of becoming sober and being newly diagnosed. I was diagnosed in my mid thirties. When I was diagnosed, I, you know, and after researching and getting involved in the National Alliance of Mental Illness, I was, I thought to myself, like, there's gotta be a ton of other people across the world that have are living with mental illness, maybe don't know, right? Like I didn't know for so long what was going on. So I was like, oh, then I'm going to write about it. And I felt like being able to use my stand up as a platform, using humor, right? To kind of bridge that gap and, and, and take the edge off of the seriousness. Yeah, it's been amazing. You said you had an addiction. Mental health, you know, we talk about dual diagnosis. Was the fact that your mental health, is that what led you to your addiction, do you think? The fact Probably. that you the fact that you had mental health issues that you weren't really maybe aware of. Right. Yeah. Just very yeah, untreated mental health that I was self-medicating, no coping skills. And then, you know, once I hit that rock bottom and, and realized that everything that I had been doing up until that point was wrong, that something had to give. When I was diagnosed, I very much embraced it because it felt like like a light bulb went off and like, okay, now I have an answer. Like all this time that I thought I was a jerk and I wasn't like, the, you know, it's, it's the explanation, not an excuse, but it allows me to be someone living with mental illness rather than someone that is suffering from one. Once I was able to put a name to that, I was able to you know, navigate life a lot different. I'm really happy to hear that. Uh, Jennifer, when you, with the kids and families that you work with, how often is it that people feel like there's something wrong with them? and not the fact that they don't maybe know how to navigate their emotions and their thoughts. So often, so often, and they're living in so much pain and so much fear and everyone else sort of present, especially with social media, this is so devastating for younger kids because everyone on social media looks like they're living their best life and it's devastating. And they just feel like they're completely alone. They don't understand what's happening. So the fact that people are having these conversations and letting that veil down, I think is so important. And I mean, more than ever with the pandemic, I mean, it's mental health issues and anxiety and depression are through the roof right now, especially for young people. Well, for everyone, but I feel like in my work that it's hit the teens so hard. And Aaron, you've mentioned that with This Is My Brave, they have these events and these shows. And of course, some of them are virtual now, but they're also, they were physical, you know, live event shows before the pandemic that you have all types of artists, storytellers, but telling stories in different ways. You said you actually had a mime. And yeah. I was like, I was like, I'm an emotional mime, but I'm not <laughs> familiar with the craft of it, actually. 
Yeah. It was pretty impressive. You know, I mean, I, I, he was physically acting out probably, you know, what others feel when they um, deal with what he deals with. So he kind of, he had, it was, it was very emotive. It was impressive. You know, he definitely had like a lot of angst. You could see like working through his body. I mean, it wasn't your normal, not mine, like in his box, you know, right. against the wind some of the time, but also like a lyrical dance without the music. Right. He was, it was really just, you could feel the emotion from his expression without any words. So, so, the, so there's music, there's spoken word and not spoken word and writing. And there's a lot with yeah. this process. How do you choose the, the storytellers? So we do call for storytellers and we run aud- auditions and we really train our producers to look for a variety of individuals. So we want on our stage to have a variety of ages, uh, races, ethnicities, diagnoses, and then methods for telling the story. So we would try to get representation of definitely want to hear musicians and poets. It's fun to have a stand-up comic because they give an interesting perspective. There's always a, you know, a couple essayists, but even some people's essays can be very lyrical and powerful in the spoken word. You know, I, I, it's really impressive to see people who choose these creative outlets for all of this that they're feeling. You know, it's not just a story. There's so much more that they've worked into their pieces and it's theatrical. It's very impressive and overwhelming, really. It makes you laugh, makes you cry. It's it, the whole show has all the things start to finish. It's really powerful. Aaron, how do you come to this? How did I come to this as my brave? Yeah. In 2016, I lost my son to suicide. His death for my family was, and the community really was a complete shock. My husband and I took a very public platform in how we were talking about his loss, the circumstances surrounding his loss. I, at the time, was living outside of Washington, D.C., not far from Jennifer Marshall, who is the co-founder and executive director then of This Is My Brave. And so I I happened to order for my daughters. I'd heard of the organization, and I ordered them some Brave Beats from the website. Jen called me instead of, I thought, I really didn't know that this was the executive director was going to be processing my beat order, you know? And so she picked up the phone because she realized that we were not far from her. She'd heard, um, I think, about our story. She said, I could drop these in the mail to you, or we could meet for coffee and I can give them to you in person. So she and I started meeting and she told me what she did. I just was overwhelmed with the idea that we could do something. I mean, I knew very well that my son probably lived with the shame of the stigma associated with mental illness. That's what I think prevented him from ever asking for help. He didn't know that people live well and thrive with mental illnesses. You know, we don't talk about it enough. It just left him in a really dark place. And that ultimately ended up causing his death. When she started talking about what she was doing at This Is My Brave, I was like, how can I get involved? I was offering to volunteer. She said, well, would you ever, I mean, over the course of several conversations, would you ever think about coming on board? And I was like, yes, I'm ditching that corporate job and um, I'll be there in 10 minutes. Took a little negotiating how we got how we got there, but I started in 2019 as a program manager. And so I worked directly with producers who were you know, around the country getting their shows on stage, helping them through that process so that they would have a successful event for their community. Next thing came and um, ended up working as the interim executive director now. So 
Fantastic. It's congratulations. It's so, you know, you know, um, the word brave is like a big word and it's such a great word for an organization that brings people out because you have to be brave to talk about what's going on with you and to risk all kinds of judgment, all kinds of ridicule, all kinds of issues. And so many people, I mean, it's come a long way, but it's amazing how it's still such a stigma for people. And, and I also think that you know, the general public doesn't really understand what the path of a, of a person who struggles with mental uh, health, mental illness is like. They don't have a context right. for it. Right. So, so now I want to say that last night I watched the Brian Wilson documentary. Mm-hmm. And if you haven't seen that, yeah, that is like the best thing I've ever seen, which gives you a context on how somebody struggles with it, but also works through it, through the mm-hmm. art. And, yeah. it, and it keep, that, that guy is incredibly strong. And anybody who's going through these, these issues is very, you know, how strong it is to have these kind of issues and persist and actually create from it and, and work through it. Not only is it brave, it's heroic. Jennifer, we're hearing about suicide. We're hearing about addiction. I'm telling the audience that the comedy is coming. Now, how do people cope with these kind of things and, and what can be done like, how do you support, how would you support someone? I should be asking you guys, but I'm throwing it to Jennifer. How do you approach people who are struggling with mental health in a very serious way? Probably the biggest thing is just approach that person from a place of love, right? Not fear. And it's so scary. We, we're not really taught how to talk to people. We're not. People panic. What do I say? Right. Or they start talking about, well, think how lucky you are. And I mean, someone who is struggling, who is in that dark place of of self-loathing and literally on the floor going, I hate myself. There's no reason for me to even be here. I don't even deserve help. Like that's what a lot of people go through when they're in that really dark place. It's terrifying for parents. They don't know what to do. They don't know what to say. And so a lot of what we do at Connected Parenting is help parents to just be present, to just listen. You don't even necessarily have to start out by fixing, just be there in that moment, learn how to be present and soothe your child by just being there. I'm sorry you're feeling so dark. I'm sorry your brain is doing this to you. I can't imagine what it must feel like. And just sit there. How can I help you? What can I do? And just be there. That's probably the most terrifying thing for a parent is to go through what you've gone through, Aaron. But to even hear your child talk like that is petrifying for parents. And people don't know what to do. Parents don't know what to do. Our whole organization is about teaching people how to listen, how to listen from a place of compassion and how to be present without problem solving can come after. It's the listening and the connection and and being willing to kind of go into that place with your child. And that's terrifying. You have to be brave. You really do. Yeah, I think the bravery is on the part of the parents for sure. I just heard an interview with Jamie Raskin, who lost his son in January 2021 or maybe late December, but then um, was also on the, in the Capitol during the attack. So he's just written a book, which I think is going to be really fascinating. But one thing he said that really struck me in that interview was that he regrets, I mean, parents who lose their children to suicide and anybody really who loses someone, I think we spend a lot of time thinking like, what could we have done differently? One thing that he very clearly articulated is he knew his son was struggling with depression, but he never said himself the word suicide to his son. It's clear that he's gone through that over and over again, that he wishes he'd broached that topic with his son and said, is that something that, I don't know, I don't want to put words in his mouth, but I can imagine that he wishes he'd, he'd asked very specifically. 
But I think that that's the worst case scenario when, when we do contemplate that our children might be facing or our partners might be facing mental illness, I mean, probably runs through everybody's mind. And um, if we're not addressing it appropriately and asking the right questions and leave people feeling more still alone. Right. And that's our whole goal with this is my brave is to help people who, who hear storytellers like Amy T and anyone else that's been on our stage to know that they are not alone, that there are other people who have faced this, are figuring it out and are living well and thriving, even though they have a diagnosis. So that's really our goal. And, you know, you said earlier that it is brave for people to stand on our stage. And I do, I think it's very brave, but the vision of this is my brave is that one day we will live in a world where we won't have to call it brave to talk openly about our mental illness. We'll just be talking. We'll simply be talking where it's just, Hey, you know, I had lunch today and I saw my therapist, you know, (laughs) that that could just be a normal part of our conversations. Amen. And Amy, you'll like this because uh, I have been in therapy since uh, since the year one. Like, I don't know what year this is, but it's been thousands. Mesozoic era. The Mesozoic era, it started for, for Ed Krasnick. My best friend is Irish Catholic and a Bostonian. I told his family at Christmas dinner, I was like a teenager. And I said, you know, I'm, I'm seeing a therapist. Um, and his mother said, oh, are you mentally tired, Edward? Is that what it is? Are you mentally tired? You sound tired. And I said, he said, could, could you could you pass the potatoes, Edward, if you're not too mentally tired? And that's the way they approached it. For certain cultures, it's like a it's like a big thing. What about for your family, Amy? How did how did people deal with this? It, it was unique. Uh, I'm very fortunate to be married to a psych nurse. So he's a psych nurse <laughs> practitioner. So good choice. For me it's- yeah, it's like in-home care without the copay every single day. <laughs> Good choice, Amy. Yeah. yeah, and I yeah, I lucked out on that one. But like mm-hmm. going back, like since being diagnosed, like I've really thrown that like myself into it. Like whether it's being in comedy, I'm now a peer specialist and a recovery coach. I work for a dual diagnosis treatment program, working like as a peer. And so going back to like talking about it every single day and normalizing it as much as possible. Like you can be successful, happy, and healthy just exactly who you are. We just got to figure out who that is and how, how we manage it. I'm constantly using humor with my, with my clients and actually have encouraged them to participate in This Is My Brave and, and continue to do so. Made an entire career out of just being who I am. That's a great career, by the way. Being all, your whole self is like the, the, the goal. It's the dream. And it's, it's why people want to be performers and artists and what do you do on a daily basis to keep yourself sane? Like, how do you, how do you work on that? And how, how are there tools and skills and things that you do? And I'll, I'll, I'll start with you, Amy, and, and want to talk to Aaron about it. For me, I start with a lot of gratitude. Like I wake up every day, every single day, just happy because it's a brand new day. And I constantly make sure that my day is filled with joy. And that way I know I'm going to have a good day all the time. Like today, I knew I was going to be doing this. Like, how great is that? Right. My wife and I went for a Thai massage earlier today, but like, I make sure that my day is, it's perfect. Right. So now I have a career that I love to do. I work two jobs doing that. I I get to perform on the weekends. So I've like, I've structured my, my life in order to be perfect for, for me anyways. It really does start with a lot of gratitude. I make sure that, yeah, I can make lemonade out of anything. Yeah, it might be raining, but good. My garden needed flour. You know, my garden needed water. Like I just constantly just kind of roll with it. And I try to it's flip the script in my head constantly so that 
I don't let it get away from me, you know, during the pandemic and you saw so many people struggle and because I think they've never had to. I know what rock bottom looks like. 2020 was nothing. I'm like, I got this. <laughs> I, can, I can do this. No problem. Because yeah. I, I've seen it worse. Yeah. So for me, I just embraced it because there was nothing I could do about it. So a lot of the kids that I work with who struggled with anxiety, crippling anxiety for most of their lives said the same thing. They're like, I got this. Other people are have no idea what anxiety is or what it feels like or what to do about it. And they've got a whole bunch of tools. And they were like, I got this. It is amazing how the pandemic, like there's just a whole part of the population, if you're lucky enough to be well physically, that sort of like took a, a sigh of relief. And took a sigh of relief and said, oh, this is easy. Like, it's yeah. the other world that I don't like so much. It's the other it's the other functioning that I don't uh, I'm not familiar with. Aaron, how do you do it? What kind of skills or tools or practices do you have? Because unimaginable uh, what you have dealt with and what you've experienced. Unimaginable for anybody who hasn't gone through it. I did a lot of grief work. I mean, I did, you know, I took the time and I was lucky enough again uh, to be in, in a situation where I could take the time to do the grief work. And that just means sitting with your sorrow and sitting with all of your regrets and sitting with just all of it. You can't run from it. Do I like Amy, you're flipping the script. I did. I had to do a lot of flipping the script. I have a very close family friend who lost um, a spouse to cancer, you know, and, and there's a lot of second guessing on all things, you know, so when you lose someone, there's always second guessing. But I did spend time in therapy, of course, and we did cognitive behavioral therapy, which was great for me. And that's a lot of script flipping, you know, just that we can tell ourselves that if only I'd done this, then this would have happened. And really, I had to spend a lot of time working past that. And then also just always having to focus on the gratitude. Like I did a little stint in a coffee shop in between after my son died and I ditched the corporate job before I got to this is my brave. I was in a coffee shop and literally pulling shots. It takes 30 seconds or so to pull a shot. And I'd have to just sit there and just like try to be present just to pull the shot. Like, and, and just do that. Like, just sit here, watch this beautiful gift shot be poured. <laughs> And just stays present for this. And it was 30 seconds by 30 seconds by 30 seconds until I could build it to a minute, until I could build it to five minutes. I mean, literally, it was it was a lot of work. I'm grateful for the work I did now. I, I can still be present as a parent for my other children, as a spouse for my husband. Time and effort and patience. The other thing I, I live by is radical acceptance. Of radical acceptance. That we are where we are. I also want to, I want to borrow Amy's gratitude because that's not something I'm, I'm always the best at. It's certainly not starting my day with gratitude. <laughs> it's starting my day with a, like just tearing my, you know, dragging myself out of bed. So I want to, I want to try to do that. And I think even there's some science to say that gratitude actually, when you practice that, it does turn your brain more to focus on gratitude. Like it is, it is transformational for your brain. I believe. I Je Gen Jennifer, go ahead. But it's healing and it, you're changing the biochemical makeup in your body. The one thing I will say though, so there's people listening who, if they're in a really dark place, if people try to say to you, oh, just think about what's good in your life, then I'll tell you exactly what happens. They feel guilty for feeling terrible. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I, what I want people to know is that it's steps to get there, right? Are you talking about a lot of work? It's, it's more work not to do it, but the work is worth it. 
And you can't jump to, okay, well, these are all the things I'm really grateful for. It's like, okay, well, can I find one thing? Or can I think about something neutral for a minute? And then go back to feeling terrible and then go back to feeling neutral and just finding the smallest, tiniest things. And it's literally like rewiring and training your brain to think in a different direction. And I don't know for sure, but I feel like for so many people who have anxiety and have depression, they're often very deep, introspective, highly sensitive people who feel everything. And they have a brain that looks for those patterns. So it can work for, for comedians are a great example. That's how you find what's funny, right? You just make these amazing connections and then you bring it to people. But that same part of the brain can turn on you like a monster and do the exact same thing in the opposite direction. So it's kind of really helping people to understand you are the thinker of your thoughts. You're the storyteller, not the story. And it's a lot of work and it feels exhausting and it feels like you don't want to do it by li- but little by little by little. And then you fall and then you get back up. You can rewire. You will always to a degree have these issues. They're who you are. And it's not about changing who you are, but it's understanding that you can eventually, the brain is incredibly neuroplastic. You can offer new directions for your brain to go in. For me, like just starting with gratitude in the day, right? Like just start one thing and I'll start with them. Like, let's do three at the end of the day by six o'clock. I want you to send me three. And then after, right, then that's all. You can find three things that you are grateful for. And if you you can't do something big, it could be like, my coffee's perfect. That's it. Anything. Yeah. They didn't screw up at Dunkin' Donuts today. (laughs) (laughs) That is something to really be grateful for. Yeah. When they don't, that was like a great day. Right. (laughs) Fabulous day. After three, you know, like, and so I usually do it in like three week increments. So after three weeks, three is easy now. Now let's do four. Yeah. And so I have them text it to me and then I've started a journal. So I write it down for them so that oh. at the end I can give it back. Right. Like you have That's it. Cause I know if I, if I tell them to do it in a journal, they're not going to do it. But if they do it, if they can send me a text that I can transport to them and then maybe they'll create the habit of doing it on their own. I but love not- giving it back. I love that. That's a, That's a whole idea. world. That's the wave. Get the wave going. Yeah. And then they can have something to look at later, you know, yeah. like, Oh yeah, I was nice. happy. You know, when I went for a walk, like today was an absolute 60 degree day in Boston in February, like crazy enough. That's it. That's all. That's you have it. To Nothing yeah. else. Can you do me a favor? Can you start uh, texting Erin and get her into the gratitude uh, thing that you can yeah, there start you go. on the program? You're going to text text Erin every day. Yeah. You're going to text exactly. her in the morning, in the morning. <laughs> but do you know how much joy it brings me to get like, you know, a bevy of texts from my clients of like five? I mean, it takes two seconds to read. And then it yeah. makes me like happy to see their transformation. Like, you know, I'm, I'm thinking of somebody that I'm working with right now in the last two months that we've been doing it. And it's like I'm I've watched her transformation from two months ago to be like she's just doing it to you know pacify me to now that she's actually kind of getting into it like seeing a little bit more of the world that is actually happy well it's magic it's magic go ahead Jennifer I was gonna say one of the hardest things sometimes is the fear if I start having gratitude if I start thinking that things are okay then that part of your brain that thinks no be miserable be down there because if you're down there you can't fall any farther just what are you doing don't sit up don't move and depression in particular is one of those heavy, like if you think of emotions on a scale, it's the most motionless, heavy, you can't fall any farther kind of emotions. I mean, even you're angry, you have something, you got some oomph, like you're fighting somebody, <laughs> right? And depression is just this heavy space where it's so free, it's so scary for people to leave that. And so you just kind of want to gently call them out. Can you find one thing? Can you think of one neutral thing? 
Is there, you know, and it could be the smallest thing and just building in those increments. And then you'll see the changes that you're talking about, Amy, they just get braver. It's all about bravery, really. It is a little self-confidence. Like, yeah, all you do today is take a shower, then call it a day. Anything beyond that. That's a huge great. But if you showered and that was what you had on your goal list or you made your bed and that's all you did. All right. I almost didn't, I almost didn't have that, but now I feel better, but I almost didn't have that today. Yeah. Don't don't overwhelm yourself. Like what needs to be done at the end of the day, end of the week, end of the month, when you look and see what I got to do for the next five years, well, then you're going to be like, forget it. I'm not going to do anything. But if you can just do one thing at a time to get you to the next bit, that was what was working for me. Like, okay, I can just do one thing at a time and then I'll add to that. Conversely, the worst thing that could happen from doing any of these things, either thinking in small increments, taking a breath, giving yourself credit for getting out of bed, getting you know, or for taking a shower or for calling a friend or for, for having a cup of coffee and just sitting with it for a minute. Whatever you do, the worst thing that can happen is you're going to feel better. That's the worst <laughs> thing that could it's possibly true. happen is that you're going to feel better and then you're going to connect it with it's something that I did consciously. So I can actually shift my emotional state consciously. Look at yeah. that. Look what happened. Yeah. I was going in one direction. Now I'm going in a different direction. I mean, I totally found that um, like when I'm having a really bad day, I really think I need to break this up. Like I need to stop and go do something different. Really, when you're having a bad day and you like there, you can get stuck and be like, it feels like crap, but like doing something different doesn't feel like that's going to work or it feels almost like gratifying to sit and wallow in the crap, right? So I have forced myself recently to go out and just take a walk, even just make myself go like just one quick loop. I do it and I'm I the whole time I'm doing it, I'm like, this isn't gonna work, this is stupid. But I'm just telling you every time it works, it, it does. Yeah. Well, it, it takes a lot of energy to be in a state of depression. It takes so much more yeah. energy, yeah. a tremendous amount of energy. So scary for people to leave that. Because at least it's known. I can't fall any farther. If I hope, if I have hope, if I try and I fail and I just get disappointed again. So it's really challenging. And even when I have kids or or young adults that I work with and they've had a day where they've showered and that was their goal. Then we talk about, you know what? Tomorrow you might not do anything. I, I, I often find there's this pattern of like a clawback the thing to remember too is that anxiety and depression are they're self-preservatory. It's it's a weird and twisted way that your body loves itself, and it's just trying to say, "Don't move, don't move," because you go if you go out there, you're going to get eaten. So just stay here. And if you think about depression in of itself, if something's chasing you and you've been running for 45 minutes and you can't run anymore, there's this natural switch that forget it. You know what? Okay, fine. Here come get me. I can't do this anymore. It's it's a very common thing. And what's so interesting and what we don't talk about, and Erin, you were talking about this, it's very common for people to have suicidal ideations or thoughts. I know. Yeah. More than you think, right? Nobody yeah. knows that. What's less common is to act on it or make a plan or become, you know, the, the fact that you're thinking about it a lot and you're talking to people a lot. Mm-hmm. But those emotions are, it's your body in a weird way trying to love itself. And so helping people to see that and that if there's a day where you do more then the next day, don't try to do anything because that's the day your anxiety is going to go, what are you doing? What are you doing making progress? You have no business making progress. Get back down on the floor, right? And then they get mad at themselves that they couldn't do yesterday what they did today. And it's a sort of really interesting journey to recognize that in yourself, to love yourself enough to keep trying and to take tiny baby steps every single day and loved ones are great and they try, but they often say all the wrong things. Right. One big thing at connected parenting is like, what do you say? What don't you say? 
Don't say, hey, look how lucky you are. Come on. Uh, feel so much better if you take a shower. You think they haven't thought of that for the last five hours and mm-hmm. they're saying to themselves, you idiot, why can't you take a shower? So it's really in a loving way, helping families know how to support, how to be present and help that person so they can help themselves. And it's it's a dark, scary place, but look, it's so possible. You talk about this a lot too, Jennifer, and there's a brain element to it. Your brain works in a certain way. When your brain thinks you're in danger, it does things, sends you messages, it things. does and all it- kinds of things, and it's trying to protect you. In a weird way, I, it's funny because I sort of describe anxiety and, and anxiety and depression are like wicked little cousins. When I work with kids and, and CBT is wonderful and we do CBT at Connected Parenting, but we do it with a little twist because some people, when they're going through CBT, when the anxiety goes, wait a minute, wait a minute, these strategies are used so you can get rid of me. <laughs> I don't think so. Well, it'll sabotage the the therapy or make you not go or not do the exercises or decide it's stupid. And so I teach our, our young people that it's like a dog. It's like a big goofy dog that loves you so much. And in the beginning, it just barks at suspicious looking people outside. And then the people keep walking mm-hmm. and the dog goes, Oh, I'm pretty good at this. You know what? I'm going to bark at everybody outside. And your person's still there. And the dog thinks it's doing a great job. And then eventually the dog's like, you know what? I'm just going to lie on my person's chest. I'm just going to lie on my person's chest and kiss their whole face and just lie on them and they'll be safe. And they will, but they have no life. (laughs) They can't get up. (laughs) They can't do anything. They don't take any risks. They don't go anywhere. And when you talk about getting rid of the dog or getting rid of anxiety, that's terrifying. But if you talk about training the dog, we Mm -hmm. love the dog. You can't live without anxiety. You need it to survive, to cross the street, to not eat rotten food from your fridge, to not punch people in the face. Like you need anxiety. It's a central part of being healthy and human, but you want your anxiety to be trained. And so the kids love that idea of training the dog. So the dog lies in their little dog bed and just comes out when you really need it in really important moments. And that's a huge, huge part of understanding how the brain works and what it needs to get better and better. I love that. I love that so much. And I feel like I feel like a lot of these interventions are very simple things, but very powerful things. They don't need to be done perfectly. I think sometimes I know myself, when I hear a tool or a skill or a thing, I think it has to be done in a certain way. If it's not done in this way, I'm not doing it right. And I'm not good at this now. Here's another thing I'm not good at. It doesn't really even matter what the skill is or what the mental fitness or, or what the practice is. It's the intention and the awareness. It's the intention and the awareness. If you're aware that you have choices and you can make them no matter what they are, but you make them consciously, you know, I'm going to say, look, I used to be somebody who hid. I was somebody who'd stay in bed and I would never answer the phone. And it's just like, I didn't understand that feelings don't make you a bad person. So I just didn't come out. So I'd leave for three months. Friends, it's like, where were you? And I'm like, I'd make up some stupid, ridiculous excuse. I just didn't know that it was okay to have feelings. And I didn't know that I was not my feelings. And I was not my, I thought I was my thoughts. I thought I was my feelings. So now when I go out and I do stand up, say for years, you know, I I struggled my whole life. I've struggled with depression. And I knew that one day I would learn how to make this funny. Tonight is not that night. That's (laughs) how I start my act. So that everybody's got something. It's an age of diversity and inclusion. You're including people. So there really, there really doesn't need to be any separation between mental illness, mental health, addiction, diversity, uh, neurodiversity. Uh, these are all inclusive things. Like you said, Aaron, one day we're just going to talk. 
And we're going to, it's going to be part of life. It's part of living. Everybody has different skills. Everybody has different, they, they have issues, but we all, we just talk about it. We accept that we're human beings. There really is a split between there's mental illness and there's mental health. There's mental illness and addiction. And then there's uh, mental fitness, which is a whole coming thing. And then there's well-being and wellness and resilience. I kind of wish all of these strands would kind of come together. And I feel like they don't. I know that the mental health, the mental illness and addiction wing of mental health, it's a certain kind of thing. But mental health and resilience and resilience education, that's, that seems like another thing. And I want it to be the same thing. How do we bring it together? I, I mean, I think that's what we're trying to do. I mean, I think that the, the separator is that there's shame and um, stigma to talk about mental illness and addiction, whereas mental health sounds really empowering and wonderful, amazing. And so if we could take away that shame and then bring them back all under the same umbrella, like, man, I had a really hard time with my mental health because I went through this thing um, and I had to see a doctor for it and I had to go into special therapies for it, but I came through it or I've worked, I've developed some tools that help me manage it daily. I mean, it is mental illness, but it is, you know, it's coming at it from a way that there's no shame about it. It is just what it is. We do it with health. We're able to talk about our health and how we encountered something. And, you know, I had a, a, a thing on my face and the doctor saw it was cancerous. So we did some treatments. I had to go back three or four times, right, to get my treatment. And now I'm doing better, but I have to see the doctor more regularly because I might get others. You know, I mean, it would be the same thing with your mental health if we were, if we took away the shame and the stigma. You know, I noticed something. I went and, and had, saw a specialist about it. We're working out a plan. I mean, if we could just talk about it like that and not you know, laden it with this heavy stuff that the makes me feel bad. Yeah. yeah. I That's very rarely use the word, Ill, word illness because it sounds negative, right? Like illness just sounds negative. So I, I usually go with mental health and going back to like the stigma is like the media will give you an image. I, I use this on stage. Like the media gives you an image of what mental illness looks like, right? Like it's someone with orange hair that blew up like a movie theater or a school. And then they'll cover such a tragedy and they're like, this person suffers from mental illness. And then they just cut to the weather. So right. like the masses have an image in their head of what it looks like. And then I get out on stage and I talk about it. And I'm like, I look just like you. I saw you at the grocery store. I saw you at the bank. I'm in the room. You know? So taking like the, the try to get that mental picture out. And my and I'm sure you see it all the time when you get off stage and you get done talking about it. Somebody inevitably will come up to you and be like, thank you. Oh, you know? yeah. Yeah. Right. Thank you so much for talking. Me too. About it. Me too. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Now, I'll, always. Always. You know, I there there really is a great group. I want to put them in a plug for them. It's the Sandy Hook Promise, and these mm-hmm. parents got together and they came up with a whole educational program. But it's called. It starts with hello. It's an educational program about how to talk to kids who are lonely and loners and how to draw them out. And I think this kind of questioning of kids and people. What's going on today? How are you doing? And then sit and listen for a second. What's going on? How's it going? These are simple things, but starting with hello is like a really good, hello, how are you doing? I'm in your third grade class. These are like big things in, in our culture. And, you know, isolation, loneliness is like a public health issue. I mean, the, the, the Surgeon General has actually designated loneliness as a public health issue and one of the one of the top three 
public health issues, especially now with the pandemic. So whatever you can do to draw someone out is a well, great thing. In a time when we're so connected, supposedly, with our screen, but if they're not, I mean, some of them are real connections, but in general, we've never been less connected. And I think like how to talk to people, like that's why it's such a big part of parenting to help parents talk to their kids about emotions. And Erin, you were talking about how you got through, or I'm sure are still getting through what happened with your son was to sit with the grief, right? To feel the feelings. And so many cultures are like, run away from your feelings, blame it on somebody, drink something, buy something, do something else so that you don't feel what you feel. And even parents have such a hard time tolerating their children's feelings. And I don't mean that in a negative way, just Oh my God, my child's upset. I got to fix it. I got to buy them something. I got to, I got to cheer them up. I got to do something instead of like sitting there and helping your child ride that wave. Okay. So we feel terrible that you didn't get invited to that thing. Let's sit here together and just feel what that feels like. And let's let that emotion kind of rise in us and let's just respect it and thank it. It's trying to save us. It's trying to help us out and let's just ride that through. And just like a wave, it'll let you go. And when you think about like, if, if a kid falls and cuts their knee, I mean, yeah. some parents may do this, but nobody goes, well, your other knee's fine. Like, just get up. Like, you, you know, your elbow's okay. You would sit there and go, oh, 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 that hurts. Oh, and you were having the best time running. And then you felt you'd stay right with them in that. And so there's so much that we can do, not just as parents, but as neighbors, as friends. Mm-hmm. to really human. <laughs> As human yeah. beings. Ride the wave. I think Ride the wave. Amy- what Amy's doing with these young people or these people, I don't know if they're young people, the people that you're working with, just being in like this accountability partner, just to, that you can text. I want you to text me. I'm expecting you to text me. I want to hear from you and that you're bothering to write it down and share it back with them. I mean, that's authentic connection. And that I think is probably what's not so much all just the gratitude that they're sharing, but that they have somebody to share with. And that you're expecting it. And I'm sure if you don't see it, you're going to be asking them for it. And so there's that feedback. Yeah. I mean, that's that's really a remarkable piece. The the gratitude is one thing, but just just that connection it. that you've created is another. Amy, I'm on your list. I'm starting. <laughs> I hope so. I'm on you're your ready list. For it. A lot of people are gonna be starting texting you, Amy. <laughs> yeah. You know what I just I hope so, right? Like how much how much fun is that? Because how do you not like How's that not bring you your own joy and fill up you're, your own tank? You you're know? receiving these messages. That's the message, right? right? But, yeah. you know, often I, when I speak at colleges, you know, I have like a one-woman show that I do that's just completely different than the club stand-up, you know, act two. But at the end of my thing, at the end of my speech, I'm always like, you know, if we replace the I in illness with the word, with we, then I would be living with mental wellness and I can't do it alone. I love that. Love that. Love oh the week. Oh my gosh. That's nice. So just that, change, just flipping the script a little bit. You got to posterize it. You got to posterize yes. that. That's a poster. That's you good. That. Yeah. That's really good. Very good. Very good. Wow. Well, well, I this is an ongoing conversation. You're both going to come back. We'll talk more. So. You'll come back. But this is but this is spectacular. You guys uh, the spectacular work that you're doing. That this is my brave and Amy, the work that you're doing. I think people really, I think people are going to adopt the the gratitude text program. And mm-hmm. I'm gonna I'm gonna start calling it Umerang. Umerang app or something, right? Right here, we could adopt call, an app. We, we call it Umerang. I'm telling you, it's like a boomerang, but it's you. You're sending it. It comes <laughs> back. Umerang. That's my name for it. <laughs> Tell them, Aaron, where they go to find out more about This Is My Brave and how to get involved. 
Sure. You can go to our website. This is my brave.org. And you can follow us on Instagram at this is my brave, all one word or Twitter at this is my brave and also Facebook on there. If you ever think, wow, it would be amazing if I could stand up and share a story or sing a song about my experience or share a poem that I've written about my experience. We have This Is My Brave shows going off all year long. We have three right now that are already cast for the spring, but we have five or six coming up in the fall. So you can find out more about those shows that are coming up in the fall. And hopefully there's one near you. If you have a story to tell and there's not a show coming up near you, you can submit on our Contact Us page. You can submit a blog post um, about your own experience. Or just let us know, you know, that maybe you'd like to have a show come to your city and we can talk to you about how that would happen. And there's a national teen program. Is that right? Yes. Since 2019, made an effort to reach younger and younger crowds. We have a college program where we do college editions of our show and high school editions of our show. We also have opportunities for college students to be brave ambassadors where they are interested in um, changing the culture about how mental illness is discussed or mental health is discussed on their campus. And they want to be a part of the change and changing the way that it's discussed so they can become a brave ambassador. And really it just means like registering, letting us know that you're interested and joining us for some groups with other brave ambassadors, other young people from around the country who are interested in changing the conversation on their campuses as well. This year, we haven't been able to do it, but last year we did a a National Brave Teens. We did a virtual show that we are going to start putting out calls for in the fall for spring of 2023. If you're a teen and you're interested in sharing your story, reach out to us and we'll keep you on our list. And when it's time to make that call, we'll be sure to get in touch with you. I got somebody in my own house who's going to do that. Okay. I'll tell you right now. That's tremendous. This is mybrave.org. Thank you, Aaron. Fantastic. Ed, Jennifer, it was really nice meeting both of you. Pleasure. A pleasure. You'll come back. You'll come back. And Amy, tell them where they can go to find out about you. Experimentalcomedy.com. Experimentalcomedy.com. Amy T. All the way from Haverhill, but national and great. The Umarang program is out there. (laughs) And Jennifer, to find out all about Jennifer's work, go to connectedparenting.com. Connectedparenting.com. It's amazing. Amazing, amazing, amazing. Thank you, everybody. I want to just say to everybody out there listening, surf the wave, ride the wave, ride the wave. The wave is there. Ride it. Enjoy it. Have fun. Emotional surfing and mental fitness. Here we go. And ask for help if you need it. You can always ask for help. Mm -hmm. Get your surfboard out and ask for help. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Thanks a lot. We'll see you next time. Look for us wherever you get your podcasts. Write to us. Tell us about things that you wish you knew as a kid. You can write to Ed at MakeLightMedia.com. Ed at MakeLightMedia.com. What did you wish you knew as a kid that you now know? Tell us about that. We will see you next time on the Mental Health Comedy Podcast. Keep coming back at Works If You're Working. I'm Ed Krasnick for Jennifer Kalari. See you soon. <laughs>